The Electronic Intifada. Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. Rafif Ziada is a London-based poet and activist. Her newest CD, We Teach Life, combines poetry and music and makes a deliberate connection between activism and art. Drawing on her experience growing up in Lebanon as a Palestinian refugee, she says that central to the theme of her writing are the multiple sieges on Palestinians, but especially the Israeli siege on Lebanon in 1982 and the current siege on Gaza. A video of Ziada reciting her poem, We Teach Life, has garnered almost 900,000 views on YouTube since 2011. Activist Hazem Jamjoum recently interviewed Rafif Ziada in London for the Electronic Intifada. We begin today's podcast and the interview with We Teach Life, the title track from her new CD. Today, my body was a TV massacre. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre that had to fit into sound bites and word limits, filled enough with statistics to counter measured response. So I perfected my English, and I learned all my UN resolutions. I perfected my English, and I learned all my UN resolutions. But still, he looks me straight in the eyes and asks me, Ms. Ziada, Wouldn't everything be resolved if you Palestinians would just stop teaching so much hatred to your children? Pause. I look inside of me for strength to be patient. I look inside of me for strength to be patient. But patience is not at the tip of my tongue as the bombs drop over Gaza. Patience has just escaped me. Pause. Remember to smile. Rafif, you're on camera. Remember to smile. Remember to keep it together. Pause. We teach life, sir. We teach life, sir, after they have occupied the last skies. We teach life, sir, after they have built their settlements and their apartheid walls. After the last skies, we teach life, sir. But today, today my body was a TV'd massacre that had to fit into sound bites and word limits. They need a hook They tell me every journalist needs a hook They need a personal story Just a human story How about you give us a story of a woman from Gaza Who needs medication Just medication Shh We're not speaking about that word occupation Shh Don't mention that word apartheid Just medication How about you give us a story of a woman from Gaza Who just needs medication Maybe she can be pretty Maybe she can speak English without an accent Just a human story, a human story This is not political, you see How about you? How about you? Do you have enough bone-broken limbs to cover the sun? Hand me over your dead Hand me over your dead And give me the list of their names But make sure that it's in 1,200 word limits Today, my body was a TV massacre that had to fit into sound bites and word limits it was made to hook those that are desensitized to terrorist blood but they felt sorry 
They felt sorry for the cattle over Gaza, so I give them statistics and UN resolutions, and I speak their language. I give them statistics and UN resolutions, and I speak their language. We condemn, we deplore, we reject, we condemn, we deplore, we reject. These are not two equal sides, occupier and occupied. These are not two equal sides, colonizer and colonized, and a hundred dead, two hundred dead, a thousand dead. I recount, I recount, I recount, and remember to smile, not terrorist. Remember to smile, not exotic. And I recount, I recount, I recount. A hundred dead, two hundred dead, a thousand dead, a hundred dead, two hundred dead, a thousand dead. Is anyone out there? Will anyone listen? I wish. I wish I could just wail over their bodies. I wish I could just run barefoot in every refugee camp and hold every child, cover their ears, so they wouldn't have to hear the sound of bombing for the rest of their life the way that I do. I wish I could just wail over their bodies, run barefoot in every refugee camp and hold every child, cover their ears, so they wouldn't have to hear the sound of bombing for the rest of their life the way that I do. Because let me just tell you, there's no soundbite. No matter how good my English gets, no soundbite. No matter how well I practice, no soundbite, no soundbite, no soundbite, no soundbite will bring them back to life, and no soundbite will fix this. We teach life, sir. We teach life, sir. We Palestinians wake up every morning to teach the rest of the world life, sir. This is Hazim Jamjoum from Electronic Intifada, and I have the honor and privilege to be interviewing Rafif Ziada today, renowned Palestinian activist and poet. Thanks for being with us today, Rafif. Thank you, Hazim. I first met you as an activist, and a very active one at that. And then all of a sudden, you were dropping. At that time, it was All Shades of Anger, which... Um, was an extremely powerful poem, continues to be an extremely powerful poem. I also remember in 2006 when you dropped that poem at the QP Ontario convention right before what, what became the first boycott resolution of any trade union uh, in you know, the quote-unquote Western world. I think only Kosatu from South Africa had come before that. Um, and, and people from that convention actually had said uh, that your poem was part of the reason they voted the way they voted. So, um, but how did you get into poetry? How did that poem come about? How did sort of Rafif the poet emerge? Um, I've, I'd been writing poetry my entire life. Um, I think, like, as a lot of Palestinians, Mahmoud Darwish's poetry was central in my upbringing, being a refugee to Lebanon, um, and leaving after the siege of Beirut and the invasion of, of Lebanon. Um, books and poems like Memory of Forgetfulness uh, shaped my entire childhood and they were a form of survival. Um, like the line about um, your dead and wounded are ammunition within you mm. uh, is, is one of the poems that I, I memorized before I could even speak Arabic properly, I think. So poetry had always been central in my life. I started writing at a young age. The difficult transition for me was writing in English mm -hmm. uh, because English is not my first language by any stretch of the imagination and I used to make a lot of mistakes. Um, 
And also, I've never studied formally performance, like mm. standing on a stage, projecting microphones or any of that. So it was it was a difficult process to get over all my insecurities and fears and do that. But it was the one incident at York University that really pushed me uh, when someone kicked me in the stomach and said, you deserve to be raped before you have your terrorist children. And it was actually that evening that I performed Shades of Anger. I wrote it the same day, performed it that evening, and the entire time my eyes were closed. Um, and I, I opened my eyes at the end of the performance to see a standing ovation. Oh, wow. So I thought something must be going right. Mm-hmm. Well, something definitely was going right. Um, can you tell us a bit about, since then, if you've sort of developed a, a process for writing? I mean, two of your most famous poems, one we've just talked about, and then um, We Teach Life, Sir, you introduce um, even on the CD that we're here talking about, which is uh, named after that poem, We Teach Life, um, starts with how this poem came about. Mm-hmm. Uh, do Is that usually kind of how this happens or is there, or will there be some intentionality of, oh, I, I really feel like I need to, I want to write something today or will something off, take a long time to write and edit and revise? Um, I write in my head quite often. Mm-hmm. I also speak to myself when I'm walking and when I'm on the train, I speak poetry to myself to see what it sounds like and it really freaks people out on the <laughs> tube in London. I should probably stop doing that. Um, so so there's, there's multiple ways. Sometimes I just write on napkins in restaurants and try to keep them. Mm. Um, it, it is very incident heavy, my, my poetry generally. It'll be from watching the news or something has just happened and I feel compelled to say something about it. Um, I've, I've been trying uh, lately, and I think on this CD, I hope people feel it more. I've been trying to hone the craft of the writing uh, a little bit more, um, work on the images, the metaphors, the things I'm using, and it, it's a work in process. But I, I wouldn't say I have one process of doing it. There's multiple ones. I see. Um, well, also kind of back to, you know, Rafif, the activist, and Rafif, the poet, there's, I guess, an age-old... Um, hopefully not particularly asinine conversation about, you know, the relationship of art to politics and politics to art. Um, We were talking earlier about the film Amandla, about revolutionary song in South Africa, where there's this key conversation about whether revolutionary art creates revolutionary situations or revolutionary situations allow for the popularity and creation of revolutionary art. Um, it must be something you think about since you sort of embody this particular conversation as well in that um, in, even just in the day, the way your day or your week is divided um, and the kinds, the different kinds of work that you're doing, whether it's this kind of creative po- poetry um, or the nitty gritty headache of organizing. Um, how do you think about the relationship between these things? It's a difficult question. Um Largely because in the way it's posed sometimes, um, people make it seem like you have multiple personalities and that they don't talk to each other or or aren't integrated in any way. Mm. I just did that, I think. Um, (laughs) And and I think, um, like, I I see myself as one person, generally, that that writes and organizes and and both influence each other very, very much. Um, And and I think this idea of, of dividing ourselves into different sections um, is, is quite a, 
a modern one. I think of people like Ghassan Kanafani, for example, who were spokespeople for organizations and amazing activists and wrote history books and like, history and also wrote novels. Um, I like this idea of, of us being multidimensional. It's hard. I wish there were more hours in the day that I could devote to poetry um, and my activism. I, I also need to have a paid regular job and I, I have a whole other hat as an academic as well. Um, but I, I think that f for me, all of these aspects actually build on each other and I try to get the one to support the other rather than take away from it. So that's on, a, on you, on your personal level. Mm. On a broader level of um, you know, social, social change and social transformation um, that has some degree of intention behind it and some degree of also you know, uh, conflict and contradiction and differing ideas. Um, where do you see... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that, um, and we'll talk a little bit later about some of the particular poems on this CD, um, but where you're clearly using your poetry as a vehicle for an argument um, of, of some kind or another, right? And actually, in, in most cases, it's a very clear argument. Um, uh, as beautiful as it is and as, um, as uh, incredible some of the imagery that you will kind of uh, couch it in, you're delivering a message through your poetry. And, you know, we've all heard also critics say things like, you know, art should be separate from politics, mm -hmm. art should be for its own sake, these kinds of things. Uh, which clearly is not where you stand on this. Just listening to the CD, it's quite obvious. Um, but how do you think about those kinds of, that, that uh, larger relationship between art and politics? For me, spoken words specifically, and, mm. and the reason I chose this form specifically is because it is about communication to an audience. Mm. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a form um, that's, that's very much in words about just the writing process, but also about delivering it and having an audience understand you and feel um, something when they're hearing it. So I do care about communication. I'm, I'm certainly not doing it just for myself. Um, I, I think there are ways to have messages in what you do uh, that are thoughtful, sometimes inspiring, and I hope to inspire but sometimes they're also not inspiring. Sometimes they're about a feeling. Uh, and that feeling could be of hurt or disappointment or just how, how tiring the struggle can be. I think all of this range of emotions is important to have in poetry because I think at the end of the day, we need to be honest and truthful about the different modes of being that you go through uh, when you're an organizer uh, or a non-organizer. All, all of these things need to be present, and I, I try really hard to present all of them. Um, it's, it's just difficult for me to separate out the politics because it's ingrained in my entire history, like being born into a war and an invasion in Lebanon, growing up undocumented as a Palestinian refugee, um, seeing first intifada, second intifada, the current popular uh, uprising that's going on on the ground, it just speaks to me and it's something that I want to write about. I think there's something extremely powerful about the role of art in sustaining us as human beings. And if, if you look at social movements generally, what we remember of them is the poetry, the music, the art, mm. the theater. Um, 
so I think those moments generate a specific art form. Um, I don't I don't think it's necessarily the other way around. We're like, but but I think the fact that this is what we remember of social movements for me is very meaningful. Yeah, and I mean also I guess uh, I think often also of you know Sheikh Imam songs mm. and Ashikin songs that also commemorate a particular event. Mm. Um, that I may not even have known about had it not been for this song or a particular person who once they're martyred or murdered, um, they're commemorated through song. And then we think of Che Guevara through the Sheikh Imam mm. song about Che Guevara. Or we think about the siege of Beirut. And we have all of these facts and figures. And the Ashikin song about Ishhad uh, Alam Aleno a Beirut becomes the image that we remember the moment through. Um, on this level also, I want to kind of ask you about criticism. Does, uh, you know, Mahmoud Darwish once said something quite interesting where he sort of told the Arab press to stop showering Palestinian artists with love and to start treating them as artists by criticizing them and offering criticism so that this art can grow. This was 20 years ago or more. Um, do you think that's changed? Do you find kind of uh, people engage with your work on a critical level? Uh, in a way that's clear to everyone involved that this is about allowing you and other Palestinian artists work to develop and grow and uh, and and change even or well two points I'd make I've been so happy and thankful for the support that I've gotten from Palestinians and pro-Palestine activists around the world for the work that I do it's been really uh, it's given me a lot of strength. And that's also because I have an entire folder of hate mail <laughs> that I get on a regular basis from um, Zionists who attack everything that I do. Um, at one point, it was even difficult to go to university because you'd have a crew of like Zionist students following you, tracking every move that you do, um, just trying to intimidate you not to do activism. So the the, the support is, is really needed and really necessary, and I think sometimes we forget um, that, that we also need to support each other in, in different forms of art. Having said that, um, I think, yes, there, there is a way in which, because the topic is Palestine, people are fearful of engaging with art as an art form. Mm. And I, I'm trying to break through that. Um, it's in the, in, at the same time, it's, it's difficult... Um, you need an environment for art criticism. Yeah. You, you need um, an, an engagement on a community level, not just an individual level. Mm. So I have a few people I really trust and admire who I send the poems to, uh, to give me feedback on the poetry, um, to tell me whether it's making sense or not making sense, and that's really helpful. And the same on the music level as well, because this CD has music on it too. Um, I think, does that answer the question? Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also interesting that because it's, and again, it's um, like the Darwish's point is kind of, it seems to be well taken in a way, is because it's about Palestine, your art will be perceived along those lines of either hate mail or fan mail. Mm. And then it's left to a, a small number of people to also kind of treat it as art and talk about it as art and, and give you feedback on it as art, not just as um, an artistic vehicle for this struggle. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's, it's difficult to draw the lines, I think, mm. From, mm. from what I've seen um, in, in a lot of the emails that I get. It's, mm. it's difficult to draw the line. 
but uh, actually I've gotten some really good feedback mm. on this CD since it's come out. It's been really encouraging feedback. Um, people liking the transition from the first CD to the second one, uh, but also some wonderful criticism that I've taken to heart. Mm. Well, um, so let's talk about this CD. This is We Teach Life. The first CD, Hadil, was widely beloved. Um, and something tells me this one is going to be even more beloved. Um, the, the, the poem itself, We Teach Life, went viral. I remember checking once and then checking back a week later and the numbers. Um, and of course, I was very happy for you, Thank you. and still am. Um, but did you expect this particular poem of all of your poems to be one that people would kind of, it would resonate in this way? I had no idea. Yeah. Um, I actually performed the poem. I had no idea it was being filmed. Um, <laughs> and it, it was an evening here in London where Remy Kennedy was actually performing. Uh, and I was, uh, I was performing right before him, so I didn't even know the camera was there. I went into an academic conference right afterwards where <laughs> I didn't have internet access and I was presenting a paper, so I was very stressed out. And I came out of that three days later and the the video had had something like 300 hits and <laughs> i i really had no idea that was going to happen i'm i'm glad it did and i'm i'm thankful that poem resonated with people in in the way that it did um it it took me a long time to do this recording though because i felt a huge responsibility after that mm. um i wanted to put out something that included that poem because it has never actually been recorded that's right only the video has made it out so i wanted to do that justice um but also chronicle the time in between that poem to today. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do in this new CD. So can you tell us a bit about the process of putting this CD together? Clearly, I mean, anyone who listens to it will immediately know that you've collaborated with some extremely talented, creative artists. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who dabbles in playing the Oud, the Oud on this CD is on another level. Um, but as is all, all the rest of the kind of mixing and then it's um, you know it starts off with this kind of heavy heat with that besieged mm. uh, track and right away I, mean, I thought I was in the middle of a song I was like trying to check actually to see if maybe it had skipped some because you come in right um, actually like a, a bombardment oh no yeah well not in a not in a negative way it's just like it it, it, it demands your attention um, and then the, the, the different dynamics of each different track um, are really, really different. You know, there's tracks with you and just the Oud mm -hmm. that you kind of like get into a very somber mood. And there's others um, which awaken a kind of more anger response about, you know, Gaza is all, you know, I don't mm -hmm. think you say the word Gaza too many times, but the siege on Gaza is mm -hmm. central throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, boats and breaking the siege come up in several of the tracks. Um, can you tell us about the process of making the CD and, the, and who you collaborated with? Because um, also, you know, spoken word is one thing when you get up on a stage, but then having to sort of record this with this other element of music and beats. Um, uh, how does that happen? I had had half a mind actually to call this CD uh, Between Two Sieges mm -hmm. because there's there's two sieges that are central to it, the siege of Beirut in 82 mm. and the siege on Gaza now. Uh, and, and I often say I feel like we Palestinians have been under siege um, since Israel's settler colonial project began. It's just different forms of sieges on different, on different parts of us. 
Um, so you're absolutely right. The, the both sieges are very present in there, but also the longing uh, for the right of return mm -hmm. is, is central to this entire CD. In terms of process, um, it's quite different from my first CD because the first one, we all sat down in a studio. It was my first time ever in a studio, so I was panicking so much. Uh, and we did the music and the performance together, all of us sitting around. Um, this one, we couldn't all get in one place. It was just too much money to be able to do that. So it had to be done um, across several continents. Mm. And I was really lucky to collaborate with Phil Mansour, um, who's an artist in his own right and produced the CD and made most of the music on it. And we really wanted to try and make a music that highlighted the words. Um, quite often, I find with spoken words that people just put a hip-hop beat in the background That's right. and you hear the words over it and sometimes the beat is different than the rhythm of the, of the words. And so I, I definitely didn't want to do that. I wanted to make sure that there's an Arab sound a contemporary sound and that you could still feel the words very strongly. Mm -hmm. um, I might have driven Phil crazy in the process of trying mm -hmm. to accomplish that, but I, I hope that we did. Uh, also, Muhammad Yusuf, who's a master oud player um, who also lives in Australia, did the oud on two of the poems and with, with some of the other tracks as well. And the oud does something to me emotionally, mm -hmm. um, brings up all my my homesickness, but also my inspiration. And I really wanted Oud on the CD. I, I hope people like the music and appreciate it. No, I definitely did. Um, and I think you really nailed it with highlighting the words. Uh, they, they definitely, at no point do they detract from, uh, from you, the words that you're recording, um, and definitely enhance what's going on in there. I'd like to talk about some of the poems. I'd like to talk about all of them, actually, but we don't have enough time for it. But, um, but there's two that I feel sort of raise, and I want to sort of talk about them in terms of the issues they raise, actually. Um, and I wish we had time for me to talk about them also on the artistic level and the music. But Passport really hit home for me. Mm. It really hit home for me because it's... Well, I mean, I guess you can tell us, but it's... I hope this isn't a spoiler. It's set in a way, in that room where you swear allegiance to the queen. And it's very funny because you do this word play with the word heir, right? Successors. But you overpronounce the H. Mm -hmm. So it's the queen and her hairs. Um, so also kind of playing on the English as your second language thing, which uh, is sort of disconcerting, hilarious, and brilliant. Um, but... It's the moment where this person who has been a refugee all their lives and is still a refugee, but is now documented. Mm. This moment of becoming an undocumented and, you know, the, the, the punchline that punches you in the face is this is how the other half live. Mm. Right. So, um, I mean, what a moment, right? It's still with me. I lived that moment myself at one point. But but tell us about your experience of it and this poem. Um. So I, I recently became a Canadian citizen and I totally didn't realize when that happened that you had to go and to, you had to be uh, in Canada to swear an oath to the Queen of England. And I was living in England at the time and I thought, come on, there must be a way where I could just walk down to Buckingham Palace or something <laughs> or do it in the embassy. But they were like, no, you need to be there. And you walk into this room and, you know, ev every person in this room is a migrant with a story and a history and we, they give us a sheet of paper of an oath we have to swear. 
and the word is airs, but it's it's I I still look at it and think it it looks like hairs every time <laughs> I see it. Um, so we had to sit in this room, and a man walks around and says, "I will be watching your lips. You better be saying these words, wow. and you have to swear an oath to the queen and all her heirs, and then you have to sing the national anthem, uh, both in English and in French, even if you don't speak French." And for people unfamiliar with the Canadian national anthem, it's. Um, Uh, oh Canada, our home and native land, mm-hmm. and just having to say that um, on stolen land in a settler colony, to become a legal person with a passport, to be able to travel, and to swear an oath to the Queen of England, you know, a country responsible for the Balfour Declaration, and mm-hmm. and so much of of the misery we live in in Palestine was like all the contradictions of my life in one room, mm-hmm. and then having to sing. Canada and French really badly all together <laughs> um, and and this poem is, is about that moment which I think most Palestinians who've had to you know get naturalized mm-hmm. somewhere in the world have had to contend with and then I used the passport to travel for the first time and it was the weirdest feeling I have ever had mm. um, I didn't get stopped I didn't get questioned um, I didn't get you know body searched as I usually did And I literally wanted to stand there and say, "No, no, no, you, you forgot, you have to do this. <laughs> you've got this all wrong. You, 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 you've messed up here. <laughs> something something is is off about this. Um, so I, I don't want to ruin the entire poem, mm. um, but that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, I always sing uh, well, I, I remember for mine, I sang uh, our home on native land. Yeah. <laughs> my little, uh, weapons of the week moment. The other poem that I think, I mean, for me these days, one of the things that we really need to be highlighting is just how much a part of the Israeli apartheid project the Palestinian Authority is. And um, and also because of, you know, the solidarity movement and the history of the national movement, there's a certain flattening of Palestine and Palestinians as one homogenous thing, um, as if it's really clear what all of that is about. Um, and then we get this poem, The Palestine I Know, where you are sort of both clearly but also quite subtly um, highlighting contradictions mm. that fall under this rubric of Palestine, these three syllables that are part of our everyday, mm. and where you're kind of reconnecting Palestine to You know, your utopic project, our utopic project, uh, where freedom is actually freedom on multiple levels mm-hmm. and not just the ability to raise a flag or to have a president. Um, tell us about this poem. So the poem starts out with the Palestine I know doesn't have a VIP pass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because when I even even before the contradictions of the Palestinian Authority and, and the so-called Oslo peace process were, were so apparent. Um, the, the one week I got to ever go to uh, Ramallah, the, the, the anxiety it caused me seeing uh, a lot of people I had grown up with really buy into this statehood idea when we totally didn't have self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this, it was all a mirage. And people were talking about 
you know, how, how, how great it was that now we have a Palestinian authority and we can own houses and our houses are going to have jacuzzis. And it was just a, a language I was so unfamiliar with, like all, all my language of, of liberation and self-determination and freedom had been stolen into this yucky, <laughs> sorry, mm. that's not a very intelligent word. That's mm, a good word. But it was like this, this whole state building project mm. um, that had like, leaders and people in position and managers and everyone was like anyone can be a manager these days mm. um, and it, it it disturbed me so fundamentally I felt that I, I really felt I was losing a part of my body a part of my history um, and I, I knew I couldn't live under that and I, I felt very deeply what the Oslo so-called peace process was all about and this was in utter and total contradiction to the Palestine I know, mm-hmm. which was, you know, women in shelters in Beirut who used to sing and teach Debke um, and say that it was their voices and, and our Debke that was making the building shake, mm. um, not, not the sound of artillery telling us not to be scared or of, you know, the strength of families who wait for their children on hunger strike as political prisoners and support them every day and, and the mothers who carry the pictures of, of their loved ones every day and, and go to the you know damn Red Cross office with the pictures of, of their loved ones that they haven't seen for years. Like that's the Palestine I know. And people can accuse me of, of being overly romantic, but that's that's my Palestine. Yeah. Um, and that's the Palestine I hope for for all of us. Uh, a project of justice that's not just for Palestinians but but a a justice for everyone everywhere um, whether in the Arab world or outside of the Arab world Um, not one about VIP passes and you know raising a flag while we have no self-determination whatsoever I I know some people who loved raising the flag will be very you know offended that I think this but you know it is what it is and I they can listen to the poem (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and also it doesn't, whether they love it or hate it, the fact of the matter is that the one victory of the Oslo Peace Agreement was this very symbolic thing of the colors of the flag are no longer illegal, mm. but you don't get a state and yeah. you actually kind of yeah. get I'd, I'd rather the flag be illegal again. Yeah, in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'd, exactly. I'd much rather we exactly. go back to that. The Palestine I know does not have a VIP pass. The Palestine I know does not have a VIP pass. The Palestine I know does not have a VIP pass. Wear Armani suits and French cologne. She smells of sage and za'atar. She is warm like Deir Yassin. The Palestine I know taught me Debke in a shelter in Beirut to the sound of bombs and said, they're just making music for us. They're just making music for us. She was a woman so big with love She would laugh out loud and stomp out loud And say, it's me making the building shake Don't you be afraid, children Don't you ever let them scare you not have a VIP pass. She held her daughters and waited for her husband on 66 days of hunger strike and told the world his eyes are the most beautiful blue-green. I wish you could see them. The Palestine I know 
does not have a VIP pass. Matter of fact, she is stopped at every port and questioned. Her skin inspected for signs of Nakba. She slept on the cold cement of the Cairo airport with her three children around her. And with her eyes in silence, she told them, Your Mubarak will fall. For every Palestinian you have held in these dungeons, one day your Mubarak will fall. Palestine, I know, does not have a VIP pass. She walks straight past settlers and soldiers with her head held up high, screaming, my olive tree needs me, my olive tree needs me. And she hugs that tree so tight, her hands become its branches. Palestine, I know, does not have a VIP pass. The Palestine, I know, doesn't care about a VIP pass. She does not negotiate the size of our prison. She breaks down its walls. She doesn't dialogue across its bars. She breaks those bars and beats them to the rhythm of old slave songs, freedom. She breaks down those bars and beats them to the rhythm of old slave songs, freedom. and listen if you stop and listen you can hear her pacing across the shoreline from Yafa to Akka all the way to Gaza waiting for her children to come home so just to end um, on a poetic level uh, I mean this CD just came out so this is sort of an unfair question (laughs) clearly what's next for you is to sort of do interviews like this and to kind of perform some more of the uh, poems that are on here but um, do you have some thoughts about a next project I'd like to for now um, focus in the next few months on promoting the CD um, getting it out there uh, because we decided earlier on as we were making it that we want uh, the proceeds from the CD to go to um, supporting organizations that are doing solid work with Palestinian and Syrian refugees um, whether they've crossed the Mediterranean already or before they cross. So it's it's very important for me from that perspective um, to get the CD out there um, and, you know, do interviews like this and talk to people. Uh, hopefully we'll be touring um, early in the new year. Uh, in terms of collaborations, what I'd really love to do as the next stage is work with uh, a few female singers that I've met to do soundscapes with my poetry. Um, and do a, a project that's more like a two-woman play between soundscaping, sounds, music, and poems. But that's sort of in, in the long run, um, and, and the discussions about it have just started. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Thanks. Um, well, I can't wait for that. But for now, thank you so much on behalf of Electronic Intifada, um, and good luck with this CD and with uh, academic work and with all of the different hats that you're wearing. Thank you. That was Hazem Jamjoum interviewing poet and activist Rafif Ziada in London. (laughs) 
that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.